Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Let's take a look at the currency market. Sterling down 1% today. Uh lowest since 2017 concerns about a hard brexit what does it mean for sterling and other currencies around the world uh we welcome our next guest dr win thin global head of currency strategy at brown brothers harriman uh he's on the phone with us dr thin thanks so much for joining us first just want to get your thoughts on sterling here where do you think this thing goes uh given what appears to be increasing odds for a hard brexit hi first of all thanks for having me on it's always a pleasure uh, look, we're getting the first signs out of the new Boris Johnson government, and to me, the signs are not good. It, it's a lot of tough talk. He's saying October 31st, do or die, all, so on and so on. And, you know, they're talking about um, doing away with the Irish backstop, but that's a deal breaker for the EU. The EU is not going to uh, agree to that. So, to me, the UK is, is, is negotiating from a position of weakness. And so these threats to, that there's going to be a, a hard Brexit and pull out, it's, it, they're really meaningless. Um, the, the EU has already said uh, it, it's pretty much non-negotiable at this point. Um, so to me, I think markets are coming to grips with, yes, the hard Brexit is, is becoming more and more likely. So what's the downside? Like, what's going to be the floor here for these fears? I'm sorry, what's the floor? Yeah, so how low can we go for sterling? Oh, boy. Well, look, that's a tough question. I take, let's take things, you know, sort of a week or a month at a time. This, we, we think the March low, March 2017 low from 121.10 is the next big target. Let's get there and see what happens. Uh, you know, you have some people out there calling for parity with the dollar. I think that's getting a little far ahead of itself. But look, I'll, the only thing I'll say is this. That the Bank of England did a scenario analysis last fall. It was accused of being a scaremongering. But, um, you know, they call for, I think, uh, somewhere between 10 15% drop in sterling, 8% contraction in GDP uh, in the uh, case of a hard Brexit. Look, it's just one scenario. But, you know, I think it's sort of anyone's guess is, is as good as anyone others. But it, it, let me just say this, that sterling would be would be definitely sold on, on a hard Brexit. So, Dr. Thin, we have the Fed uh, going to announce their decision on Wednesday. We've got the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan also weighing in uh, over the near term. Given that this we're getting this global reduction in rates, is now the time to be taking a harder look at emerging markets? Well, I've been very uh, cautious on emerging markets for most of this year, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons. So to me, you know, the liquidity story is, is obviously very positive for EM. Um, you know, zero rates in most of the world are getting lower. Uh, the Fed back on the cutting bandwagon. Um, and so that gives you a national bid for, for instance, for emerging market fixed income. You know, they're one of the highest yielding assets. Um, but if you look at the currency and equity markets, that liquidity story just isn't enough. Uh, the global growth story is what's lacking. We've got an ongoing trade war between the U.S. and China that's really killing the, the regional Asian exporters, Korea, Taiwan, Malaysia, etc. Uh, emerging market equities have underperformed uh, developed market equities this year. Um, and that's, again, we're missing that global growth story. Uh, the IMF just recently cut its global growth forecast again, warning about the impact of, of the, the global trade wars. So, you know, it, to me, EM is a mixed bag. I would say fixed income looks positive from the liquidity story, 
but uh, equities and fixed in, I'm sorry, and FX are, are, I think, are negative from the global growth story. Here's what I truly don't get, and that's sort of what the dollar is going to do. So if we just pretend that we get what the market seems to expect, a 25 basis point cut from the Fed uh, on Wednesday, maybe sort of, and then we're going to wait and see how the data pans out. What happens to the dollar? I mean, that's a good point. Uh, look, the, to me, the, I think the person, I think the Fed kind of painted itself in a corner. Uh, if you, if you, Close your eyes and, and said, okay, you told me where the economy is going, where the jobs report, where the retail sales are going, and you kind of ignored everything what the Fed has been saying. You would say, well, what? of course we're not, we're not cutting rates. But the Fed has painted itself in the corner. It tilted dollars just as the U.S. data was getting better. So to me, it, it's, it's sort of promised this 25 basis point cut. But I, I agree with what your assessment is that we're in a wait-and-see period. I don't think the Fed uh, would be wise to pre-commit to any further easing, given how strong the economy looks right now. Uh, we're getting 2% growth, 2.1% growth in Q2. That's pretty, pretty much trend growth um, for the U.S. Um, so uh, the markets, I think, have, are overestimating the Fed's capacity to cut rates. If you look at the January 2020 Fed funds uh, contract, it's still implying uh, nearly three cuts this year. And given what's going on in the I just don't think that's going to happen. So once the – hopefully – the markets recalibrate their Fed easing expectations. That should be the next leg higher for the dollar. I remain dollar bullish just on the underlying strength of the U.S. economy uh, and sort of my outlook for Fed policy as a result. Dr. Winthin, uh, thank you so much for joining us. As always, uh, Dr. Thin is a global head of currency strategy for Brown Brothers Harriman uh, here in New York. Here's a news flash for you. I may buy an iPhone. I have an iPhone 5SE. Do you know how small that phone is? I may buy one, and Apple definitely wants me to. The company reporting after the closing bell tomorrow, expected to make about $53 billion uh, in sales. Joining us now is Dan Ives, Managing Director, Equity Research at Wedbush Securities, with a 12-month price target of 235 and an outperform rating. Dan, no doubt Apple's going to make a lot of money. Is it going to be enough? Look, I think this is just another prove-me period for Cook and Cupertino to really show that iPhone demand is stable to slightly improving going into this next cycle, especially China. China is 20% of all iPhone upgrades. That's going to be the key focus this quarter. We continue to think it's going to be a ho-hum quarter. That's another step in the right direction. So, Dan, I think if, uh, you know, if you're an Apple shareholder today, you have to feel pretty confident that this company can make the big, big pivot from being an iPhone story to being one of uh, uh, services, subscription fees, and things like that. Um, how confident are you that this company can make that, that pivot? Look, we're confident, and ultimately, it's so the core part of our bold thesis on the name, because iPhones, take a step back, 350 million iPhones in a window of an upgrade opportunity over the next 12 to 18 months. But the monetization of services, that's the golden goose. And today, it's only 15% penetrated. And in our opinion, $400 billion to $450 billion of the valuation of Apple is the services business. Well, fair, but that's not going to be like this quarter or the next quarter, right? So I feel like we've been waiting for the big replacement cycle for a long time. Is it going to happen? Is it going to happen this year? Is it going to happen with the shift to 5G? Like, what's going to be the actual trigger for the volume of phones that we're going to have to see Apple sell? Sure, it's a great question. I think 5G is going to be the silver bullet catalyst. 
in terms of the core upgrade opportunity. But in between now and then, I think you'll see stable 180 million to 200 million type of iPhone unit years. And if they're able to do that with services being a mid to high teen grower, this is a stock that continues to get re-rated and in our opinion makes new highs. And that's why right now many yelling fire in a crowded theater on Apple, where the stock that continues to grind higher, I think the China overhang has been a 20 to $25 impact in the stock. So, Dan, uh, just recently, uh, I think last week, actually, Apple bought Intel's or announced they're going to buy Apple's uh, Intel's phone business. What's the strategy behind that acquisition? Uh, it's all about 5G. That's them doubling down on 5G. Intel back was against the wall in terms of ever since the Apple Qualcomm truce. Intel, that business was basically for sale. They got it on the cheap. And this is really Cook and Apple doubling down on 5G going into this next massive cycle. In our opinion, it was a smart acquisition. It ultimately was a cheap price. So what do you think is going to – so how are we set up? Because usually like the, the, the typical play was Apple's going to guide low and then surprise high and you get that nice boost. That's no longer really the playbook into Apple earnings. So what can we expect when the stock's already trading at 209, 210? Yeah, I think the setup is an inline quarter with a beat on services is really what the street needs. The big focus will be about the September quarter guidance and just, we'll call it qualitatively, how the company's thinking about iPhone demand going into the next year. But the biggest number is going to be China. You need to see the China iPhone number we stabilized to show some sort of slight uptick relative to a, you know, we'll call it an improving decline. That's really the key because ultimately Apple stock's going to go up and down with China, 20% of iPhone units. And I think there's many out there that think the anti-Apple, call it pro-Huawei, China nationalist movement have been a huge negative on iPhone sales. And that's going to be key for them to show that that's not the case. So, Dan, as a uh, reformed and rehabilitating media analyst here, um, I've often said <laughs> That's your that. Title. Yeah, exactly. I've <laughs> often said that, you know, as Apple pivots to more of a services company, they should really think about the content business. And I know they've dipped their toe in the past in terms of creating some content, acquiring some content, but really jumping into the deep end. And I look on their balance sheet with $225 billion in cash. Do you th envision that over the next several years that we might see Apple make a big content acquisition somewhere along the line? Yeah, that's really been our call. I mean, our call is for a company that's typically been shy of M&A outside of Beats over the last five years, that they're going to have to significantly acquire in content. I think they do go in the deep end of the pool on a larger content acquisition. I, you know, We've talked about major studios like MGM, Sony, A24, in terms of ones they could look at. I also think what's important when you look at the Intel, that was an acquisition of billion dollars. I think it just shows that you're starting to see Apple getting a lot more acquisitive, and I think content's the next step. That's key to putting fuel in that content engine on the services side with that launch coming up later this fall. But is that really Apple's MO? I mean, the Intel thing I get because they're trying to vertically integrate their business, so they just do it themselves rather than like outsource it. That makes sense. But content is just such a cash burn. I mean, is that really something that they're equipped to get into? That's probably one of the biggest debates in the name because ultimately on the services side, they've been late to the game versus the likes of Netflix, Disney, and you know, call it 15 or 20 streaming vendors. But that is really what they need to further monetize. And that's really going to be a prove-me situation for Apple on the content side. But I also view it 
just step away from content. I, it's also as a distribution. If you think about what they're really trying to do now with this next services piece is distribution, monetization, put further fence around the 1.4 billion active iOS devices to date. That's the key for Apple, and that continues to be the key of the valuation. It's that install base, it's the monetization. The services, no doubt, that's approved me, especially on the streaming side as that continues to be a crowded space. Uh, Dan, cash on the balance sheet, I mentioned about $225 uh, billion. Um, What do you expect them to do? I'm looking at the dividend yields, about 1.5%. What do you expect them to do with that cash? Are they going to give it back to shareholders perhaps in a more aggressive way? Well, they've talked about being cash flow neutral, where they're basically giving that away through whether it's buybacks or dividends. I think dividends are going to keep that one and a half. And I think there's been pressure for them maybe to go up there, uh, call it above two, but I think keeping it in that sort of sweet spot, one and a half percent dividend yields key. I think buybacks is ultimately going to continue, and ultimately it's really going to be M&A. That's going to be the trifecta strategy. And I also do think investors have started to get a bit frustrated because the buyback strategy and dividends it's obviously great for income investors and dividend investors, and many like to see it. But you really want to drive growth here. And when you look at M&A, that's the key. And you know, look at Microsoft. Microsoft's a company that for many years didn't do M&A. Then they started to get aggressive. And ultimately, when you look at LinkedIn and some of the others, those have been some of the genius acquisitions that Nadella's pulled off. Dan Ives, thank you so much for joining us once again. Dan is a managing director, equity research for Wedbush Securities, uh, joining us on the phone from New York City, taking a look at Apple. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by Bloomberg Opinion columnist Max Neeson. Max covers biotech, pharma, and healthcare for Bloomberg Opinion. He joins us live in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. So, Max, we've got another healthcare deal here. Give us the latest. Yeah, absolutely. So, this is a, a deal that combines Pfizer's legacy unit, basically all of its drugs that have lost patent protection are facing generic competition, along with, with some other chunks of its business that aren't its kind of innovative, novel branded drugs, with, with Myelin, which uh, is in a similar business. It makes generics, it makes biosimilars, it has an OTC business as well. And uh, it's basically a move to, to kind of separate Pfizer's higher mo- margin, more rapidly growing business from something that was increasingly becoming a drag on the company. And, and for Mylan, it's an opportunity to kind of turn the page on on four years of kind of continued share price declines, lots of scandals, and overexposure to what's been a really tricky U.S. generic market. This is a bit of a broader business. So for the Mylan-Pfizer tie-up, though, isn't the Mylan management still going to be like running the whole show or running the board at least and isn't that bad because don't we like don't like them (laughs) (laughs) I I mean a lot of people don't but it's they're going to be a majority of the board still the chairman but but the CEO is going to be a long time Pfizer vet and Mm. also they're they're re-domiciling back to the U.S. Uh, away from from the Netherlands, where they had kind of this complex and strange corporate governance structure that a lot of people didn't like, so they won't be quite as entrenched. And, and I think the fact that you know Pfizer, the, a Pfizer executive, at the end of the day, is going to be someone leading the company, and then CEO Heather Bresch, who has been kind of the, the nexus of a lot of the controversies moving on. I think there's a perception that that Pfizer is is going to be steering the ship to a certain extent. It's also kind of a bigger chunk of the assets, also. So I was reading the uh, Bloomberg Intelligence note on this deal, and I didn't even know there was this subsector of healthcare, the specialty generic drug sector. So 
Generic doesn't sound good to me. Specialty sounds pretty good to me. So specialty generic, is this a market that's even growing or is this just, it's not really growing. I just got to get scale and wring as many costs out as I can. So uh, the generic side, it, it's been basically in, in free fall for the past few years. Uh, just a lot of pricing pressure, kind of these buying consortiums of, of different people in the healthcare industry kind of combining to, to kind of force these these prices ever downward. Uh, specialty, there's a little bit more room. It, you know, different people have a different uh, definition of that market, whether it's just particularly complicated generics or or things that uh, are still have you know a brand but do face potential generic competition. So that market, there's a little more potential for growth. The degree to which this organization is going to, this new company is going to be able to grow is is kind of the big swing factor for its valuation. It's a lot of old drugs from Pfizer that are going to decline, uh, but those will kind of have to be uh, countered by by new generic products. Uh, by biosimilars and by basically just doing everything you can to prop up those sales for as long as possible. So at the same time, though, they're going to have like a bazillion dollars in debt, right? Like $20, 25000000000 billion in debt. I mean, so that seems rough if you're now a shareholder of this new company. It, it definitely does. For for Mylan, actually, which, which kind of this says a lot about the position there, and they will be less levered oh, <laughs> after this I after see. this deal, just because you're you're adding a lot of, of revenue and EBITDA from huh. from Pfizer. Uh, you know, it, it is a lot of debt, but the nice thing about the specialty generic business, it does generate a ton of cash, uh, which is why Pfizer was able to to tack on some debt and and take twelve billion dollars back out of this deal for for the the continuing innovation. Pfizer company. So it is a lot of debt, but they're still going to be able to pay it down and pay a dividend. It's it's uh, not as exciting, but it is highly cash generative. So what does Pfizer do now? This is a $235 billion market cap company. What's the growth story here? It's substantially better than it was prior to uh, this when this deal was announced. Now it can kind of focus on, on medicines that have a, a longer patent life, have more room to kind of grow and expand as opposed to being saddled with, you know, just this year alone, uh, Lyrica, it's a pain drug. I'm, I'm sure you've seen the ads for it all over the place. That that just lost, uh, that just is facing a generic launch. So that's going to cost them billions of dollars in sales over the next several years and basically wipe out, and if they had kept it around, wipe out much of the benefit from, from what is going well from any new launches. So this will be a, a much better looking business from a growth perspective and also a more focused one. It can, uh, instead of kind of managing this this behemoth of a, of a diversified business, it continues to, to narrow the focus on on just putting out new medicines that, that'll uh, have an opportunity to expand. So what other big companies quickly need to be sold off? Go. J&J, trim down. <laughs> uh, so J&J, &J, I think if there's one that's never going to do it, they're, <laughs> cool. they're, cool, they're cool. the one. Do it, um, never do it. Nice. They, uh, they've, they've kind of always made the case that you know our, our business works better. We like the stability of having another unit. Uh, but I think there's no pharma business out there that won't consider trying to kind of separate out some of their, yep. their older medicines because that really does create a lot of trouble. It creates a lot of volatility where you're kind of constantly fighting the battle between <laughs> new and old medicines. Max Neeson, thanks so much. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Max Neeson. You can read more on this and other stories from Bloomberg Opinion at Bloomberg.com opinion and on a terminal by typing O-P-I-N-Go.
Yeah, we want to take a look at the commercial real estate business. We're seeing signs that in certain parts of the country uh, might be softening a little bit. To get the latest, we turn to Terrell Gates. Terrell's the chief executive officer of Virtus Real Estate Capital with $3.4 billion in assets under management based in Austin, Texas. Uh, Terrell, thanks so much for joining us. Just wonder if we could start off with you giving us just kind of state of the commercial real estate market. Where are we today? Well, we've been in a 10-year expansion, uh, just like every other risk asset class out there. Um, we're at all-time highs when it comes to valuations. So that gives a lot of people pause. Having said that, um, we continue to go. We continue to have a very positive environment for commercial real estate investments. And when you look at real estate relative to other risk asset classes like stocks and bonds and private equity and commodities, et cetera, you can say from a relative beauty perspective, the relative beauty contest, it looks really quite good compared to the other asset classes. So how much of it doing well is because we have low global central bank rates? And how much of it is actually the underlying demand, the underlying business is doing really well? You know, it's, it's really both, right? So your first point is really important because what's unusual about the current escalated valuations is we don't have a private debt bubble like we've had in the past. When you look at the last several bubbles of commercial real estate, obviously the most recent being the global financial crisis or 2006, 2007 leading into 08, you know, we had some really aggressive lending standards going on. That doesn't exist today. Now, some would argue we have a bit of an equity bubble, which is fueled by a debt bubble on the public sector balance sheet, right? So the federal government, obviously, through all of its easing measures, has levered up its balance sheet, pumped a lot of liquidity into the system, which has driven valuations across all risk asset categories very high. Simultaneously, that liquidity has also influenced demand. So you have a scenario where there is a lot of demand, as you suggest. Unemployment is very low. GDP is growing, albeit slower than most people expected it to at this particular point in the cycle. Um, and you have expensive pricing, but all the rest of the fundamentals remain really pretty positive. So, Tara, I know you guys, your firm, you focused on alternative property type uh, investments. Give us a sense of what those, give us some examples of what those would look like for you guys. Yeah, absolutely. So we don't invest in what's known as the basic food groups of commercial real estate, which is where about 90% of all institutional real estate assets are held, things like multifamily and an office and industrial and hospitality and um, retail, of course. Where we focus instead is in property segments that we have found to be resilient during economic downturns, things like healthcare assets. So that would be senior living, medical office, and related. Things like educational assets, student housing, charter schools, early ed. And then probably our biggest conviction asset class right now is what we call workforce housing. Workforce housing is simply quality, affordable housing for the average U.S. renter. As you guys well know, particularly where you're located, we have a housing affordability crisis in this country. And for a number of years, we've been trying to be part of the solution to that particular crisis. And we think you can deliver attractive risk-adjusted returns investing in that space. So you're definitely not alone. And in particular, you know, I know that KKR uh, is putting a lot of money into specifically things like senior housing. Um, what are valuations like? How have they changed? How much more competition do you have right now? You know, we've seen a lot of new entrants into our categories over the last several years. You bring up KKR. If we took the top 10 
the 10 largest fund managers in the commercial real estate space, I think about seven of those have made investments in my property types in the last four or five years, which was not the case prior. What it's done is, on one hand, it's really uh, challenging because it's driven valuations higher, as you would imagine, but it's typically valuations in portfolios. So we see portfolio premiums today higher than they've ever been. However, one-off deals still are, have not grown at the same rate as we've seen portfolio deals. So you can still find value, if you will, in the cracks and the crevices. The other thing is, is when you look at the big guys, when they come into a space, that also, I guess you would say, validates the space. It creates more liquidity. So we see far more liquidity when we go to sell assets today, and we are always actively buying, and we're always actively selling. Now, typically, when we buy, we're buying one-off, and when we sell, we're selling in a portfolio, and we see a lot of liquidity for that uh, for those kind of transactions, more so than we've ever seen in the past. So I think there's a, there's a lot of positives, despite valuations being impacted, with, which make it harder to buy, but better to sell. Terrell Gates, thank you so much for joining us. Terrell Gates is Chief Executive Officer for Virtus Real Estate Capital based in Austin, Texas, giving us a breakdown of the commercial real estate market. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.